Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Sonia Bluchnot. <laughs> trying to pronounce your surname before we came on. It's okay, but it's, yeah. We're almost there. <laughs> almost. Uh, welcome, Sonia. Um, you, uh, the reason uh, I'm reaching out is that you um, wrote a chapter, and in fact, in fact, I think you were one of the main sort of instigators uh, behind the book uh, Kenevin at 21. And for those who are not familiar, Kenevin is a particular uh, framework um, in the field of complexity, um, which I'm sure we'll get, we'll get into. Uh, but Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> okay. And you're coming to us all the way from Joe, well, just outside Johannesburg, right? Mm-hmm. In South Africa. Um, and uh, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm Go on. in Pretoria, in, in, yeah, just kind of just next to Johannesburg. So, yeah. yes. Yes. Um, so I'm thinking for our audience, you know, we, this, this theme comes up again and again on, on the show, Being Human. Uh, and we have a particular meaning of complexity, right? This is sort of big C complexity, isn't it? It's a, it's a whole field. It's a science. Um, and I think for people who are, are kind of new to this, um, could you just yeah, start with a, um, a little bit of an explanation about what we mean by complexity and the way that you think about it and work with it? It's so interesting, Richard. I actually, I, I decided to, to crowdsource a couple of definitions yesterday on Twitter. Um, because it's so difficult to, to explain, um, you know, complexity without falling into, you know, very, you know, academic language and big words. But, you know, for, for me, complexity is essentially, um, entangled messiness. It, it, it arises from the interconnections between things. And it's when different, um, kind of aspects of a, of a system are connected in, in what, um, I think it's, uh, Mary Albin. She, she talks about rich interconnectedness. So it's when that interconnections actually starts changing the agents that are connecting. Um, you know, so that's the key difference between, you know, a complicated system where the parts are connecting, but it's in predictable ways. And if you think of a machine, you know, when one part connects to another, the parts don't change. But in a complex system, you know, just the fact that you and I are connecting now, we are changing through that mm. connection and everybody else who's connected to us and who's listening to this, there'll be, there'll be shifts that we can't predict. So for me, it's that kind of entangled interconnection, in, interconnectedness that, that defines complexity. Right. Right. And, and, and sort of what's your history with it? You know, when did you first, be, you know, get involved and sort of familiar with these, you know, these particular ways of thinking? So I was first introduced formally to, um, to complexity by Dave Snowden. Um, yeah. this was in the early 2000s. Um, we were both working for IBM at, at the time. And he was at that stage, he was still telling stories about, you know, going to the Pentagon and, you know, 9-11 had just happened. Um, but I think I always had kind of a natural affinity towards com- complexity. So I, um, I studied as a meteorologist, so I come from the natural sciences. And through a very long and, and potentially boring story, you know, I, I ended up as a con- consultant in, in IBM. And being a consultant in the big five, you know, kind of way that they approach things, I just never resonated with that. You know, selling recipes, um, treating each context as if it's the same, you know, that that kind of just never resonated with me. So I think what Dave did was he gave me language for something that I already had a bit of an affinity for. But that's kind of where my journey started. And I think 
for me personally, I have it, it fundamentally changed how I how I see and, and interact with the world. Um it I guess I can almost say it's become the organizing principle around which, you know, most of my life revolves. So I'm not sure it wow. happens to everybody, but that was kind of what happened to me. Wow. So what were well that's you know, that's a big big statement. So what what were some of the things that started to shift in your perspective and I don't know, where you interacted with the world once once you became familiar with this? I think it, it was, you know, in, in Kinevan, but I, I, I think it's broader than Kinevan. In, in complexity, you know, there's this idea called messy co- coherence. From a Kinevan perspective, it, it plays out, you know, in, in we believe in bounded applicability. You know, so things like methods and tools, they, they've got boundaries in terms of where they apply and where they lose their, use, their usefulness. And I think what just really struck me, you know, even thinking about my personal life experiences through this lens of understanding that not all the systems that I'm interacting with are similar, not all problems that I deal with are the same. And, you know, trying to, I think a lot of things that frustrated me, you know, like tools that used to work and suddenly they didn't work anymore, or even relational issues that I came across, you know, South Africa also, as you would know, we don't have a shortage of complex problems. And just understanding all of a sudden being able to see that one of the reasons why we're not able to solve these problems is that because some of them are unsolvable. They're patterns that we can shift, but um, we're wasting our time and energy with many of the things that, that we're doing. I think all of that just kind of combined to help me understand also why I didn't enjoy being a consultant in the IBM context. Um so yeah, those are some of the. Um, as you can hear, it kind of permeated everything. So yeah. It's, so what were some of the things you didn't enjoy about being a a, a consultant that, that applies here? It just felt exploitative, you know, like in 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 all directions. And I think a, a key thing, you know, and and understanding how a typical consulting business model works, you know, it's all about u- utilization. You don't want people on the bench. Um, and one of the best ways to do that is to to create best practice based you know like recipes that you can sell to multiple clients at the same time and i think what i saw happening was you know we were charging exorbitant rates but not really adding value to client um mm. we were taking something that we just implemented in a bank for example with some success and then we just wanted to take it into a an electrical utility for argument's sake without adapting to that context and I, I think that just, it, it never sat well with me. And I felt that fundamentally I wasn't adding value. And I was pushing products onto clients, knowing that, you know, it probably won't work for them, you know. And so there was, you know, what I loved about um, complexity and, and in particular, you know, some of the Kinevan work that Dave um, um, pioneered at that stage was there was an inherent integrity to it. You know, we, we entered the system fully aware that we are seeing it as a unique system, you know, and we can't just bring our preconceived ideas. And so I I think, you know, one of my clients, I I do some work with, um, with Ikea and a while back, um, she said, my main client, they said something that I just really appreciated. And she said, when we work with you, you sell us, um, or you inspire us, you sell us leadership, not followership. You're not trying to sell Mm -hmm. us something that other people have done. You're helping us make sense of what we want to do in a context-specific, context-relevant way. 
And I just, I, I really appreciated that comment. Wow. Yeah. That's a beautiful way of putting it. You're selling leadership, not followership. Yeah. Mm. But I think what's interesting is often clients feel somehow more comfortable following, right? Well, if, yes. if this bank did it, then, you know, maybe if we try it, at the very least, I'm not going to get fired because you know, this, this big brand consultancy, you know, I've got the safety of that brand and they're telling me they did it with this other big brand. So, you know, I can't be criticized too much for uh, following this approach. Yeah, there's that meme that says nobody ever got fired for hiring McKinsey, I think. Right, um, yeah. And and yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the difficult, you know, there are a couple of things that's quite difficult to consult from a complexity perspective. You know, there are a couple of questions I, I really dread. You know, one is what, what do you do? Because I have no idea how to succinctly articulate what I do. You know, so where I've kind of landed at the moment is I'm a sense-making partner. Um, but even, even, so who's done this before? You know, that, that question, you know, the moment you get asked that, you know, I can tell you who else I've worked with, but they haven't really done this before. Right. You know, that's the, <laughs> but yeah, so there are, there are challenges, but I, I think, it's it's interesting. Early last year, we had a, a webinar with um, one of the guests was Anne Pendleton Julian, and she articulated it in this way. She said previously, when she went into organizations with this message of complexity and that there's perpetual uncertainty, um, she felt a bit like Chicken Little. And now it feels like with Corona, we've all been given you know like a masterclass mm. <laughs> in. You know, unpredictability, uncertainty, complexity. And now it's as if it's become uh, much more acceptable. People, I think, are starting to realize that they need to become more complexity fit. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's just starting to happen. Yeah. And of course, what we, those of us who are now steeped in this way of thinking, what we hope doesn't happen is a bunch of people come out with their five step plan for managing <laughs> in complexity, right? already happening richard unfortunately um i won't name names but it's the the usual sus suspect um you know it's it's funny i um so a couple of years ago so you you never really used to read about complexity in mainstream you know like business um mm. uh, pu publications like harvard business review for example and then a few years ago you know it started coming in but what i found so so amusing is it's usually um combined with a verb that's something along the lines of taming complexity right, or simplifying, yeah. comp you know, it's like almost we can help you get rid of it. And I, I see, um, so what consultancies tend to do is they take their Or indeed managing com complexity, you know, the phrase I just used, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like you can manage it if you manage differently. I think that's one of the things, um, you know, that I find useful about Kinevan. Dave Snowden, and now I'm kind of going on a rabbit trail, but you know, he, he talks about the, um, the original meaning of the word manage and yeah. how it, it used to be much more linked to, I think it's the, the Spanish or the Italian, I can't remember, um, meaning of riding a horse in dressage, not okay. managing a household. That is, I think it, that was the French influence. And I think if you think about that, you know, you, you're not really managing that horse. It's, it's right. like a co, co evolution, a co, you know, you're trusting each other. You're, it's a, it's a relationship. And right. so I think it's Donella Meadows that says you can dance with the system. Mm. So I think that you, you can definitely manage in complexity, but you know, I don't think you, that you can tame it. I definitely don't think that you can simplify it necessarily, but you know, that's, that's what gets sold. Right. But it's so interesting. The metaphors you're linking together there, because you've gone from that root of manage to dance 
to uh, coevolution, right? And a lot of people will take that, you know, who are in a different paradigm, and I really think this is a paradigm shift, will take that starting point, manage, and then talk about systems and KPIs and best practices uh, yeah, and process, right? So it's, it's it, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not so much in the language, is it? It's, it's the metaphors we start to, you know, apply around a particular term. Yeah, I think it's it's the meanings. You know, I've been on a bit of a crusade lately um, around the words responsible and accountable. Right. Because I think um, many of you know, but they're just examples. You know, it's like manage has come to be has come to mean a certain thing. You know, the moment you say the word, people have multiple meanings. You may not mean those meanings, but they just you know it immediately comes to mind. And words like responsibility and accountability, you know, when they get used in a corporate context, most often they are linked to things like who can be blamed, who's culpable. You know, there's like a, it, it, they, and they also tend to keep our silos in, intact, you know, the, these responsibility things. And so I've been, been toying with the idea, what if we turn responsibility into responsibility? You know, and right. I, it's not yes. a new idea, but because, you know, what what I find fascinating, I, I I do some work, for example, with people in in um, safety contexts. Yeah. And even when you when you look at at the sustainable development goals and this this notion of responsible leadership that has kind of started to emerge in that community, being a responsible leader when I'm in an ordered context where everything is known, where the rules are known, where to be responsible means to follow rules, to be compliant, you know, all of those things. Those same things could be irresponsible when the context shifts or when I find myself in, in complexity. So I think many of our words need reframing or we need new words. I, you know, I, I'm starting to wonder if, if trying to find new meanings for words is not almost going to take too much energy because they've just become so in, entrenched. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, and 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 sometimes, uh, well, I challenge Dave Snowden on on what one might perceive to be esoteric language that he's using and he's describing. But I think there is a point here you're making that sometimes the words we've got right now just aren't fit for purpose, and we have to use these unfamiliar terms. Yes, and I think you can take it too far. You know, I I when I mean when when it becomes a barrier, so that when you speak, nobody understands you. I think you know then then you've taken it a bit too far. But I I do think some new words are are useful. What I find particularly useful are, are using analogies. You know, one of um, <clears throat> there are a couple that that I use. I know Dave Snowden, for example, introduced me to the you know um, a recipe book user versus a chef. You know, there's that's a really um, nice um, analogy. But one that I find works really well, especially. I thought initially only in South Africa, but it seems to to span is, um, you know, it's hard to survive in the jungle if you were trained in the zoo. Or it's hard to respond to a jungle if you're structured like a zoo, you know, that kind of it depends yeah. on the audience. But but those two, it almost immediately gets the point across, you know, how mm. a complex system is different from a complicated system and how if you confuse the two, then you can potentially get into trouble. So analogies, I find, work quite quite well. Yes, um, and Liz Keogh, who's been on this show, and you may, you know, is actually a, a, another author in this in this book where I came across your your writing. Um, does does wonderful work with metaphors. I think she mm. talks about complicated as being kind of greasy, 
uh, I don't remember exactly uh, the language that she used, but like a machine, like greasy and mm. clunky and then complex. Um, I don't know, but she has this sort of organic me- metaphor, right? It's sort of squidgy and um, yeah. And, and I love that idea of like moving into sort of more poetic, sometimes more poetic language as a way to uh, give people a sense of the ideas. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there are a couple of, um, of poets. Um, one of my favorites, I don't know if you've ever come across his work, David White with a Y. He's a Irish poet. He okay. actually works in, he, he works in, he does leadership work in, in corporates, but you know, his poetry just, um, really captures that spirit of complexity for me, you know, so, so well. You know, I, um, I, I was saying to you earlier, you know, a friend of, I'm, I'm doing some work now with a friend of mine, um, creating enable you know it's almost like um capacity building modules for some of our clients combining complexity and and mindfulness and some of the things that we're um building there you know it's things like curiosity and play and imagination and you know we find ourselves going to things like poetry quite often you know because i i think there's something in the arts you know people in the arts just some of them at least have a very intuitive understanding of of complexity right so so tell me more about that because one of the things that um well i know in my interactions with with dave has been you know there seems to be a bias against um thinking too much about the individual right because this come you know complete and and a lot of the sort of complexity thinking comes from this idea of thinking about the system right the whole and what we're looking to do as interveners in that system or consult whatever we want to call ourselves, we, we're thinking about, we're looking for patterns across the system and we're asking ourselves the questions, what intervention could we make that might shift a pattern here? You know, how could we change a boundary here or change a constraint in the system to cause some impact? Um, and, and if we want to work at scale, right, that's the idea. If we want to have a big impact, then we've got to think in terms of this, the, the collective, really, the system. And, and not waste too much time on worrying about the, the individual. And yet here you are talking about taking complexity and applying it to mindfulness, which I'm assuming is working on the individual and their mindfulness. Am I right? Yeah, this is a, a, a running disagreement between me and Dave. Although I think, you know, probably there are more places where we agree um, than, than disagree. But I think for me, it's an, it's an and, Richard. And, and I, what I have seen too much of in the past is an overfocus on on the individual. Um, you know, so it's it's when we want to create systems change, you know, we tend to make it, you know, all all around. You know, we need to train our people in the new culture, or you know, we need to train them to be agile, or whatever the case might be. You know, and my analogy for that is, you know, you send people off and you teach them in a training course jungle skills, and then you bring them back and you put them straight back in the zoo, and you expect them to be able to practice. <laughs> you know, it's like, why would you do that? Um, but, but I, I, where I think I, I disagree slightly from Dave is I, I don't think that you can ever remove the individual completely from, from the equation. And you need to work on, on the structure and the system and especially on, on the constraints. You know, it's, it's, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of at the moment in, in South African corporates, but I'm sure it's not only here. Um, there's this really weird interplay and tension between the constraints that people are currently experiencing. You know, so at, at, at one, on the one hand, they are experiencing these rigid constraints, you know, like 
lockdowns imposed by governments, can't go to the office, sitting, you know, behind, uh, you know, you're constrained to being, you know, behind the screen. And on the other hand, they are experiencing a complete like dissolution of boundaries. So um, all of the rituals, the, um, you know, the, the little things that helped us transition from one identity into another, those are just mm. gone. Mm. And, um, and many of the corporates I work with, it's as if, you know, there's no understanding that we need to, um, we need to adjust our performance expectations. We need to really consider, you know, what's happening. We're starting to see very high levels of burnout because, you know, leaders are saying, you know, but our people need to self-manage. And it's no, you need to create environments where they are permissioned in a way to self-manage, where, yeah. where you help them put boundaries in place. Because if people are, are telling stories, you know, some of our sense maker studies, we get stories there of people, senior people feeling guilty for not working on a Friday night. If, if that is the kind of environment that you're creating and that your processes and your policies, if that is the environment, you know, then, you know, it's an indictment on the system. And also, I think changing how things connect, you know, and this is very much where Dave is working and, and I enjoy working there as well. But then if you don't enable individuals, you know, with the skills that they need to function in complexity, you know, and this is where I think some of the mindfulness, um, I mean, I found it really useful um, because when you're dealing with something that's extremely messy and you're starting to get that sense of being over, overwhelmed um, and you feel the pressure coming, you know, just being able to take a step back, breathe, you know, um, Ron Heifetz talks about getting onto the dance floor. Yeah. Being able to see the patterns in your context, but also, you know, the patterns, you know, that's showing up for you somatically. I think those are, are things that can, can really help in individuals. And then I guess the other thing that I'm seeing is in, for many, um, organizations, there's a realization that they need to change their structures and their systems. But then, you know, the, the reality is many, many organizations, you know, they sit, for example, with, um, narcissistic leaders right at the top who yeah. just block everything. So then for me, so for me, it's about the individual, the collective, and then the broader social context. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think that you can ever really bring change if you don't focus on all three. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that totally aligns with where I, and it's, it's like, it's complexity all the way down. Right. And all the way up <laughs> because because, you know, what, what's a human being if not a, a complex system, right? We're a complex organism. And, and the way I see it in terms of sort of my own growth and development has been the more of the self-development work that I do, the more of the, you know, I do yoga and meditate, some, sometimes meditation, a lot of trauma release work is, is I become, um, less attached to certainty, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's my ego that wants to attach to certainty. It's my ego that wants to tame complexity to use your phrase from earlier. So I think the more that I can do work on myself, and as you said, sort of step, become my own witness, right? Breathe, you know, find ease in my body. I can be with that uncertainty, and and that. So so I, it's like I I can't divorce the two. I can't I can't divorce um, a, a sort of a, a deepening intellectual understanding of complexity and ability to practice with those principles with my own self development and self work. I, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I'm fully with you, Richard. You know, and I, I think 
I, I also suffer from <laughs> um, maybe an, an overblown curiosity, you know, so I just, I'm interested in so many things and I tend to see connections between so many different things, but you know, some of, some of my, you know, I'm, I'm extremely interested and I, I've, I've been interested in this for quite a while. For example, in, in system psychodynamics and group, group relations work. And part of that came from, you know, I, I firmly believe I can't give to my clients what I don't have. So if I can't be comfortable with extreme uncertainty and, and ambiguity and being in an, in an emergent context, I can't take my clients into that space you know, if uh, workshops or whatever I'm doing. And so I, I've, one of the ways that I like to disrupt myself is to um, go to, for example, Tavistock working conferences. And it is some of the most confronting experiences, especially um, from the, you know, from the perspective of a white South African and being confronted with these multiplicity of perspectives and the emotions and the pain and the projections and the trauma you know, and to learn how to sit in it, to know that I can't yeah. necessarily solve it. The best I can do is to be there and in some way contain my own responses and maybe contain some of what's in the, in the system. And, and some of the lenses that I've learned in those spaces have been the most useful for me when I consult in organizations. I don't necessarily bring it in as is, but it informs how I, how I see the complexity and how I see people's response to the complexity and to have empathy with some of these people who, um, you know, their people high up in organizations, their, their decisions impact. So, you know, they, so the, the stakes are really high. And so I can understand their, their anxiety a little bit better, you know, so I'm, I, I, I don't think that you can ever remove the individual human, but if you only focus there, then, you know, you're also not going to make much of an impact. You need to also look at the system and the very practical things um, to to be able to make a change. You have to yeah. open the, the, the zoo gates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You have to open the zoo gates. And I, that, that is a wonderful metaphor because, because, you know, and maybe, maybe coming full circle, that, that is perhaps one of the most important things you can do because once you've done that, People as individuals might, you know, will find a way um, to realign, to balance, to grow. You know, once they're given the conditions, and maybe you have to worry less about the you know, the coaching and the training and all the rest of it. So maybe it is the most important, but may as but but as we're saying, it's not. It's not only that. Mm. And you know, to if you understand, you know, the animal kingdom, you know, you also you can't just open the gates and chase them out; they'll all die. You know, so you yes. have to prepare them in some way with, with, with new skills. You know, and, and another um, group of people I really enjoy hanging out with are, um, uh, you know, it's like a new generation of sports coaches. They, they talk about con a, constraint a constraints-led approach to coaching where they're shifting from um, skills development, you know, where you kind of do the, you know, um, uh, you teach children, for example, how to dribble a ball, and it's about re repetition until you can perfectly dribble that ball, to creating contexts by manipulating constraints, where, for example, the constraints open up the opportunity, the affordance, what they call it, the affordance for action, where a gap opens up, and it affords the action of dribbling the, the ball through, through the gap to score, and so they learn how to be adaptive players. They learn how to play um, 
by or they learn how to see these affordances you know and i i think there's a really interesting way of bringing some of that thinking into the corporate world you know so not rote skills training but how do we create learning ecologies really you know where shifts in the system creates new affordances and we teach people how to see and act on those you know so that's another um something that i'm pondering at at the moment yes i I love that. It reminds me of something I saw within the Kenevin Community um, Forum about a complicated um, play park and a complex one. All right. <laughs> so so a, compli- a complicated slide might have a ladder up to the top of the slide and then a slide down. And it's, you know, it's very clear. You're going to end up with a best practice for climbing that ladder and getting down the slide um, versus the, the more modern one, which is just, it might just be a, a mound, right? And, mm-hmm. and and there's an affordance there. There's an affordance for you as a child to climb that mound to get to the top of the slide. But but you choose how you climb up, right? And the route, and you know, and and so I, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's permeating all kinds of fields in 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 interesting ways. Um, and I and I agree. And for my own work in terms of training and coaching, that's what I'm moving much more to that. Not even thinking about the term training. It's like I'm not going to train you to en- to do anything. I'm just going to give you certain opportunities um, that will present themselves um, as um, chances to to develop certain skills. Mm. Uh, and you you may surprise me, right? You may use a skill I hadn't even considered to get to a you know particular outcome. Yeah, and I I I, um, I think that is what gives some some people who like control and a bit of an allergic reaction because they. You know, it's you don't know what people will do when you give them freedom. Um, and it's it's I, I Alicia Jarrero, she's also um, she does a lot of I don't know if you've come across her work, philosopher, does a lot of writing on on constraints. She actually was quite a strong influence on on Dave Snowden's thinking. But at a complexity conference, this was just before Corona. This was towards the end of 2019. Um, she said something that just really struck me. You know, she said, if we collectively as a human species cannot become more comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity, then that's going to be pro- problematic because it means somebody that anyone who promises certainty will always have a following. You know, and if you think about who the people are, that's, that's promising cert- certainty. You know, they're not the kind of leaders that we necessarily want in, in the world. Um, right. And, but, but what's and interesting is, is virtually all leaders in all realms kind of have to provide that, right? You know, virtually, all right. There are some that manage not to, but it's it, it it's so pervasive, isn't it? In our in our sort of para, you know, in our societal paradigm, if you like, in terms of who we look to be our leaders. Yeah, these are um, one of my favourite quotes, and now I must just try and remember who said it. It'll come to me, but. Um, uh, it's one of the people from Santa Fe Institute, if I'm not mistaken. I'll come to it. Um, he said, we have outsourced our relationship with uncertainty to certainty merchants. Ah, lovely. Yeah. And, you know, that is, um, I, I think that is what's pervasive. And it's, it's really nice to have a certainty merchant providing certainty for you. You can be dependent, you know. I mean, it's if somebody tells me what to do and, you know, I... I I'm immediately in in that dependent state where you know I know who to blame. I so I think it's a it's one of the other things that's kind of been co-developed. This need for certainty, um, 
and I think you can give people a certain amount of c- certainty, but you know, I think any any leader that promises complete certainty at the moment is, you know, he's setting himself up for failure. There's just no way that you can, not in in the disruptive world that that we live in. So, um, but I think that you know that is the pr- projection onto leaders. You need to have answers. You need to know. Um, you know, that is how many of them got to where they are today is by being the people who had the answers and who knew. So now to be in this world where they can't know and they have to say, I don't know, it's it's very anxiety provoking. Yeah. And um, and there's some good, good science, I believe, in terms of um, people who tend to get promoted in organizations. There's a very strong relationship between overconfidence and getting to the top of organizations. Um, and, uh, I think that the line is, you know, literally the bullshitters get to the top, right? Those who, you know, are prepared to just come out with anything, um, on the, on the, you know, in the moment and sound certain, you know, statistically speaking, are more likely to get promoted. And well, and I, I get that, you know, also if you, um, if you think about what you like in a in a leader, you know, it's it's and I think it's it's these I think we've really bought into these discourses, these narratives around what a good leader is. You know, they're visionary and they, you know, they um they can make us feel safe and they're inspiring and they know where they're going and you know it it's Honestly, Richard, I don't want to be a, a leader in, in today's world. I think the pressure if I imagine myself like being the president of a country or being just the CEO of a large organization in today's context, I, I just, I, there's no, there's not enough money in the world. Right. I, there's no way that you can live up to people's ex- expectations. You know, and I think this is, you know, an, another aspect of what we spoke about earlier, this idea of the individual versus the collective. You know, I think that I'm very interested in these new emergent ideas about what leadership looks like in complexity. Um, because I think we've seen multiple things now with, with Corona, we've seen the impact that one leader can make. And, you know, so we've got, you know, the example, for example, of the New Zealand prime minister, if you compare them to others, you know, like what's happening in Brazil or in India or in, even in the U S before we had, um, Mike Pence, you know, the, the impact of an individual leader has become very obvious, but then at the same time, We've also become very aware of the impact of the collective and the system and how how many of the problems we've got are systemic. Um, so again, it's it's that and. Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's that and. And so, tell me a little bit in more detail, you know, the, the project you've got to tie this with mindfulness, because obviously, mindfulness has become such a broad. Uh, there's another another word, right, that gets used in, in multiple ways. Uh, what's um, yeah? What, what's your direction with it? So essentially, um, what we're doing and, and it's still developing, you know, so we, um, but my friend Casper and I, you know, we've been wanting to work together for a while. And what we're, what we're seeing is that very often people can, they've got a conceptual understanding of complexity. They understand that what they're dealing with is complex. But then when it comes to actually, um, you know, acting in different ways or not falling back into old ways of managing, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a barrier there. And what we've realized is very often there's a, there's a somatic response to 
you know, being in this messiness that is com- complexity. Because we've been taught, you know, throughout, you know, our school careers, you know, you need to have the answers. You know, it's, we don't, we don't really value questions. We value answers. So when you're in that space where you don't have one, or when, you know, one of the things that, you know, you would know with Kinevan, we say that in complexity, you need to experiment. You know, you need to run safe to fail probes. For many people, you know, the almost the somatic response to knowing that failure is kind of just inherently part of or making mistakes, maybe learning is an inherent part of being in complexity. There's a there's a almost an Im- immediate anxiety response for many people and then they react. And so one of the key things that that we're focusing on is how can we give people the skills to be able to t- to take a step back? to notice what is happening both externally and internally and to respond, not react. Um, and also, you know, it's, it's interesting because I know mindfulness have got many different, um, you know, meanings to, to different people, but that's almost the, the, the key aspect of this is to be able to um, become aware of your own responses, to be able to manage them and to then become, you know, switch off that re that knee jerk re- reaction kind of, and then, as I said, you know, some of the other things that, that we're, um, you know, in, in complexity, you need to be, you know, open to new perspectives. You need to be able to engage with curiosity, not with judgment. You need to be open to learning. And so, ironically, many of the things that, that we're developing are almost getting people back in touch with some of the skills that came nat- naturally to them before they went to school. Um, yeah. You know, so that's part of what we're, as I said, it's, it's still emerging, but it is really interesting because, um, the way that, um, Casper has been using Kinevan, for example, for a long time is it's almost, um, as a way to calm the nervous system because he said, if you can just get people to take a step back and give them a framework through which they can notice and make sense and they have language to describe what they're dealing with, it almost calms down the, the, the nervous system. So, that was a brand new application of Kinevan I haven't really thought about. So mm. it's been really interesting to to collaborate with him. Wow. Yeah. And what have you found then in terms of your own growth with this? Have you have you noticed changes in how you respond to situations? Is what's come come out of this for you personally? I'm I'm one of those people that that kind of really um struggle to um become quiet. You know, I've, I've never, I've really struggled with meditation, for example, but I found just connecting to the breath and knowing that I need to be more aware of my body. You know, I, I tend to be in my head, you know, I tend to ignore what's going on and just to be aware of what's, what's happening and knowing that, you know, I need to not only, um, focus on what's happening conceptually or what's happening um, cognitively, but I also need to tap into what's happening, you know, in my gut. What's ha- how am I feeling? That has been quite transformative. I, I I can't say that I've, you know, gotten there completely, but I I think it's um I think my own journey reflects a lot of what what some of of my clients are are going through. You know, it's it's shifting from almost ignoring everything below the the neck. And understanding that, you know, I've always said complexity isn't new to humans. We've always been in complexity. All of our social contexts, you know, when you navigate, when you're in traffic, 
when you're driving on, on the road, when you're using public transport, when you're with your extended family, you know, all of those contexts are complex contexts. But then when we get into the work context, it's almost as if we now believe everything around us is ordered and structured. And so just reminding yourself and reminding myself that I already know how to deal with this. I just need to kind of tap into that different in intelligence has been very, very trans transformative, especially combined with some of the experiences that I've had with the psychodynamic community, because there you get confronted with things where you want to immediately react. Right. And that is the, you know, if, if I'm reacting to a, um, a projection onto me that I'm in that moment feel is extremely unfair and I'm extremely offended, you know, then the dynamic you, you create, you know, it, it can be extremely de destructive. So that has been really um, useful for me. I feel like I'm rambling now. You must stop me. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I love that. And that resonates for me, like it, deliberately exposing ourselves to tr sort of triggering, right, to use it. Um, situations that you know, can be enormous, uh, you know, can, can provide for a lot of growth. And I found it in my own, um, my own self work with my family, right? There's a kind of one school of thought that says, um, you know, if you, if you come from a kind of a traumatic background, that it, then it's better to, um, what's it called when you, um, family of origin. So you defoo, right? You, you decouple from your family of origin, right? You're defooing, right? And, and um, and the, the other school of thought is no, you you want to kind of continue the exposure, right? To stir the pot, as a friend of mine says, right? To because actually that's where a lot of the growth has been, and that's what yeah, that's that's the route I've taken. Um, and whether it be your family who you find triggering, or whether it be uh, you know people you might meet in psychodynamic groups or whatever, I do think there's a lot to be said for that. And even with this podcast, sometimes I'll read a book and I'll literally like hate the book. And I'll be like screaming at the author. And I think, you know, and then there's another voice in me is like, no, get that person on because, you know, there's going to be growth, you know, in, in the guests that sort of wind you up as much as the ones, you know, that you feel deep resonance with. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's a skill that we've almost unlearned is to be with people that we disagree with. And not re not re reject them, but just you know I don't have to agree with you to be in the same space as you and to be respectful and to also be be curious about what it is that that you know you believe what your perspective is i think we've we've just lost that you know it's almost like we can't bear to be in places with people who um don't think like us yeah, and I think we you know and we we, and obviously that's playing out in social media, right? You know, we, we, you know, we, we're getting narrower and narrower in terms of, you know, who we allowed in the, in the garden and, um, with the council culture, you know, it was interesting to me that we had Tony Blair, who's, you know, been a sort of, to some extent, right? To some extent, um, you know, a hero for many who sort of have more progressive politics. And he's now saying, you know, he's concerned about what he can talk about, right? What, so, it's yeah. It's almost like there's there's this cleavage, right? There's there's society seems to be going in one direction, which wants everything to be sort of ordered and manicured and 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 managed, and then there's a sort of another emerging. It seems to me sort of strain in society is no, no. Come on, let's open up to our humanity. Let's get in touch with our feelings. Let's let's engage in growth and experimentation and and 
and bring on the uncertainty, right? It's and it's 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 one of you know I this is something you know and, and I'm I don't necessarily agree with everything that's that's sits in that psych psychodynamic community, but I think there aren't many spaces where I think environments can be created that can contain all of this because we we are so I think we've fallen into this thing of we need to be politically correct and we need to use just the right language and everybody's almost become too scared to ask a question or say something wrong and then they they either become super you know like politically correct or they just stay quiet and I I think that creates toxic environments where we can just never be honest with each other and what and what I find in those communities and in those sessions is that there you can say anything and you know you can it can be worked with you know there's one of the the principles there is if i can if it if i can make something speakable it becomes workable and i think now what's happened is we've just made a whole bunch of things unspeakable yeah um and i i don't think that's healthy at all yeah yeah i would agree with that because um because it's almost like we're shutting ourselves off to nature somehow because because of course human beings are all part of nature the opinions and the beliefs that human beings have and that they express is part of nature, right? It's, 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 it's learning to be with them. Um, maybe we move around them. The other metaphor I like, re- you know, recently was, you know, if you walk through a, through a forest, right, you know, some, some bushes are going to be a bit prickly, you know, the, the summer's going to sting you, but it, it, you know, you don't need to develop hatred, right? For those, you know, those plants in the forest, you just, you just learn to navigate, appreciate them for the function that they play in the, in the broader ecology. and. Um, you know, make your choices, but we, we don't need to, you know, we, we, it's like we need to be part, accept our place in nature. And, um, and then yeah. find ways to navigate it, right? And, you know, I think we've forgotten how to value diversity. You know, here in South Africa, it's it's very pertinent. You know, we've made diversity a problem to solve. And I understand why, you know, it's it's, we have a very thorny history um, there are so many in, injustices still going on and baked into our systems, but we've essentially framed diversity as a problem to solve. And the way that we try and solve it is through, through quotas and all kinds of things. Whereas if you really understand complexity and if you look at an ecosystem, an ecosystem is fit partly because of its biodiversity. Um, and I think the same is true of human systems. We become more resilient. We've, we've become more fit for complexity when we have adequate diversity and then it's, it's beyond, you know, just, you know, male, female race, et cetera. It's also cognitive diver- diversity. And I, I just think we need to start seeing it as, as a strategic asset to nurture, not a problem to solve. But, you know, it, it, that also seems to be a discourse that's become really settled. Yeah. And, and often the approaches to, it are, you know, a top down, you know, bureaucratic, you know, in the same way of thinking. And I, I think, you know, the diversity that we all need to start to embrace is diversity in our own bodies, right? You know, the diversity of feelings that we have, right? You know, the diversity of our reactions to different stimuli. Like, the, the, there's so much diversity ready that, that so many of us are failing to accept in our own beings, let alone, like, you know, out there. So, again, I suppose it's just another example of you, you've got to work at all levels. Now, my, my friend Caspery says you've got the perfect gym for dealing with complexity just in your own mind, 
when you get quiet and all of the thoughts come, and the, you know, it's like perfect, perfect gym for you to um, experience and practice dealing with complexity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so the chapter in the in the book that you wrote, um, we had we had you, you talked about these these uh, organizing principles around complexity. Um, we've we've I guess we've talked a lot about um, embracing messiness or messy coherence. Um, is, is there anything else you'd like to say about those principles that we've not touched on? I, I mean, I think just for me, you know, so they're in the book as Kinevan organizing principles, but I think they can just as well be, you know, dealing with complexity organizing principles, you know, and, and some of it relates back to your initial question about what I didn't enjoy about being a consultant, you know, and mm. one of those principles is, you know, you need, you need to allow a system to develop um, descriptive self-awareness. Don't bring the answers, don't bring your perspective as a consultant, you know, it's help the system see itself, you know, that's that's one. And and then I guess almost my favorite one. Well, I I really love messy coherence, but the 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 third one on rhythm and timing I think is is also so important, and especially in in today's world with agile and all of these things coming into organizations. You know, it seems like we keep trying to speed everything up, and understanding that sometimes you need to slow down. Something the best thing to do is to sit and do nothing. You know, I think. Many companies, what I see is they, for example, they do a restructure and then almost immediately, like two months afterwards, they do another one. They don't give the intervention they've already done the chance to settle and actually have an impact. And so oh. this idea of knowing when to slow down, knowing when to speed up, um, Alicia Juarero, again, you know, she had, she used this wonderful idea of contrasting Kronos and Kairos time. And Kairos yes, is when timing book, and yeah. context meet almost. Yes. And, and it's, it's, and I think, you know, we, we just, with all of our speeding up, we miss these Kairos moments, you know, where there's an opportunity, for example, to bring it when the disposition of a system is just right for big change, but we miss it because we're just busy speeding up. And um, so, yeah, I think that's I, – I, I feel passionate about all of those principles, but, you know, I think, you know, just remembering it's, – it's been a while since I wrote that. So remembering what's in there, you know, those are what comes to mind now. Yeah, I think I'm glad you picked up on that Kairos versus Kronos because, you know, it's, it's right now, you know, obviously both of us work in sort of management field, so that's what's personal to us. But, you know, so much of it's done on Kronos time, right? It's the plan. It's the three-year plan. You know, we're going to do this by this quarter mm -hmm. and this by the – you know, and it – that that idea is such an athema, right? To the sort of management class, if you like, right now to say, well, we know this is where we want to get to. Let's just wait. Let's be patient and let's wait for the right moment. Right? That you just, you just couldn't walk into a boardroom in the land and say that, right? Yeah, and they suffer for not doing that. You know, and I, I think, you know, coming back to the whole mindfulness conversation, I think even just cultivating that ability to sit in messiness to not jump to an answer, to be able to wait, to not, you know, again, that reaction that we, um, that we tend to have. But I, I, I think knowing when to act and when not to act is one of the key kind of things that, that a, a decision maker needs to know or needs to learn, mm. that discernment mm. almost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
and it, it, it's come up in my own life recently. So I'm in my, I'm in my mid forties now, and I ha- I had my testosterone tested. It is a little low, right? And that can have effects on well, there's the obvious wig wig effects, but there's also the you know d- d- decisiveness. You can have foggy brain, low energy, right? There's a whole bunch of things that come along, um, which I've been experiencing, and I. I I've been going to the gym a bit more because I know that can help. But then mm. one guy I, I spoke to, he said, you know, that's the worst thing you can do, right? You know, d- ditch the personal trainer, ditch the gym. You know, you're overstressed. You, what you actually need to do is to slow down and stop and allow your hormonal system to kind of get back into balance because a lot of what you're using to generate cortisol as a stress response is 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 being taken away from your ability to, you know, balance the rest of your hormones. And I just it sort of hit me back in the in the chest, you know, that just stop, slow down, breathe, right? One of the most interesting things that I um, encountered two years ago is a friend of mine who's in the performing arts who spoke about the importance of boredom and how we never allow ourselves to be bored anymore, you know, and how creativity very often flows from boredom. And it's this, you know, we want to be stimulated all the time. We want to be busy all the time. We want to go fast. We, you know, it's like, I can't even wait for five minutes for, for my food to, to arrive. And so it is very countercultural, this thing of just slow down, sit and do nothing, be bored. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's not a very pop- popular message. No, but so important. Yeah. Um, how are we doing on time? So we come up on the hour here. Are you... I'm okay to go on. I just, I heard the doorbell. So if I can quickly go and get my yeah, delivery sure. and you can. I'll, I'll press pause. Okay. You're uh, back from uh, collecting your, your shopping. Uh, so yeah, we, it's, it's funny. I was just re- reflecting on how we'd been talking about the, the importance of stopping and allowing yourself to be bored. And immediately, immediately you went off to grab your shopping. I'm like reaching for my phone, you know, want to go check the <laughs> news site and my emails. And I was like, Richard, stop. Put the phone on airplane. And I literally just allow myself to stand here and be bored for a few minutes it's good it isn't addiction though I, you know it well that's what it, it feels yeah. like you know it's and i know that many of these especially so, social media apps are designed to be addictive but you know i i have to be really intentional to not do that yeah to just keep checking and especially now with corona you know all of this doom scrolling like what's happening around the world and <laughs> God, yeah it's um I, I think we underestimate, you know, I, I read a, an article the other day where they said that we've almost unlearned or we, we no longer have the ability to read long articles, to finish books, because we're so used to getting things in these little um, tiny tidbits. And I, I, can, I can see that in myself. You know, I'm, I get very distracted quite quickly when I'm reading something long i've got so a, a whole stack of unfinished books yeah so i i really feel the need to um i don't know take take that step back slow down not um not get sucked into the frenzy i guess yeah yeah that's right getting up above the dance floor it's yeah i, I almost think it's like the challenge of this phase of sort of human development right it's like we've, we've been gifted all this stuff from sort of you know the the materiality of our of, of modern world and it's like the challenge no longer is to sort of get through the winter or you know avoid the the predators it, it's a different set of challenges we're faced with now it's, it's actually just turning off from modernity that this thing this beast we've created 
and it's it's um it's really interesting i one of the theories that i i use a lot when i'm working with teams is antonovsky's theory of individual sense of co- coherence and mm-hmm. he talks about the three things that's that's needed you know it's um to be able to comprehend what's going on to know that you can cope and then to find meaning in it, you know, so it's com- comprehensibility, manageability and meaningfulness. And I think so many people are struggling with that meaningfulness aspect of it now. Um, I sometimes I, I even find myself there, you know, I'm still doing work I enjoy doing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm busy. But then when you look at everything that's happening in the world, it's almost like, what is the meaning behind this? How, where do I, you know, and, and I, I see that especially in corporates where people are now being challenged with, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, we are being confronted with our mortality, I guess. And now we're spending, you know, how many, I don't know how, what the percentage is, but way too much time um, on Zoom calls and our children yeah. are waiting for us and life seems to be waiting for us. You know, and I see many people are, Reevaluating what they're spending their time on, yeah. um, and I think we're going to start seeing we start seeing this spilling through into into organizations. I think you know they, we're going to start seeing more burnout on the one hand, but then also more people um, choosing to leave, choosing to exit. Yeah, so it's going to be really, really interesting to see what what happens, how these patterns. We're already seeing some of the weaker signals of those patterns, some not so weak. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. I mean, just anecdotally, the co-working space that I frequent, uh, there's, a, there's a recruitment consulting company in this space. And uh, we, had, we, had a, we had a gap between our lockdowns, right? Last year, there was a, in the UK, there was like a month or so where you know, we sort of came out and then we were. But in that period, the, the boss of this firm had said to his staff, right, I want you all back in the office. And it was mutiny. Right. The entire staff, they all collectively said, no, we're not coming back in. Our numbers for the last, you know, during the lockdown have been better than they were before. So you've got no rationale to have us back in. We're not coming back in. So you kind of had to admit defeat and um, they didn't come. So, yeah, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I I could see that, that there will be, um, you know, there will be that complete shift. Yeah. It's interesting. It's almost 50-50 in some of the, you know, like research we're doing, for example, using Sense, SenseMaker. There's lots of people saying there's no way I'm coming back. You know, we even had stories where people say, if you force me to sit in traffic for an hour every day again, you know, I'm just, I'm leaving. And then there are others who are saying, I just cannot wait to get back to the office. Can we just, you know, so there's, there seems to be these these two perspectives. Um, and it's it's going to be... You know, I, I think the, the, the key question that organizations are going to have to answer is how do they build environments where, where people feel that they can bring more of themselves to work, where they can find meaning um, and, you know, do work that they enjoy and make a living, you know, and, and I know that for some roles it's not necessarily possible, but I, I think organizations, I saw, a, a, I think it was a Medium article the other day where the person was writing from the perspective of, a, of an employee and basically saying, we don't give an F about your culture. And many of the companies, you know, the leaders, the way that they are presenting why people need to come back is because they're saying it's bad for our culture. You know, we don't know how to create a coherent and a you know, culture of belonging when people are spread everywhere. And they're just saying, we don't care. 
So you need a better argument than that. I think, you know, that's going to be part of the challenge, I think. Yeah. 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 That's, that's fascinating because people are starting, maybe starting to ask, well, what, what, who's this culture serving this culture you want to create? Who's, who's benefiting from it? Because when I'm not seeing my kids and I'm stuck in traffic two hours a day, I'm not sure it's me. Right. So yeah, it's interesting. And many companies, I think now have also shown their true, true colors. Some do the, you know, really did well, you know, they showed their humanity to some, to some extent in this and others kind of showed that when you say you care about your, your people, it really is just lip service. You know, it, it's, it's some of the companies that I've, I've seen, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like there's no recognition that we're in the midst of a global pandemic and, you know, the, the social and the economic impacts that they just expected people to, um, you know, work all, all, one of, one of my, my clients here, um, we ran a sense maker study and we got stories there saying it's three o'clock in the morning that I'm completing this. And it's because it's the only time I have, um, you know, if, if you create contexts like that, then I feel that you almost deserve that your, your people leave. Yeah. Um, and we should explain for people who are not familiar with the, with the sense maker tool. It's a, it's a way of capturing, you know, mini stories um, about people's experiences in, in the workplace. But what's so powerful is you get these verbatim quotes, which, uh, uh, you know, really illustrate what's, what's happening in a culture, right? Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, some of those stories are really inspiring. You know, people can be so creative with some of the things that they come up with, you know, like how they imagine the office of the future. And then others are, you know, you, you read them and it's like you can't believe that, you know, people create work environments like, like that. Yeah, yeah. And that people, well, this is the other thing is why we come back to mindfulness and so on, is it in my people will... I think a lot of the reason these these cultures persist is that people aren't, as you say, they're cut off from the neck downwards. So their head is telling them, well, the salary is good, allows me to pay my mortgage. The head is telling them I've got, you know, high status, you know, I've got this title and I can drive this car. So the head sort of it all makes sense. But below the neck, it might be screaming, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm snapping at my, 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 in my with my kids. I'm, now, there could be a whole bunch of stuff that's happening. I'm, I'm feeling sluggish. Um, I, I feel uninspired. All of these things might be going on below the neck, but if you're not in touch with them, you can, you can work 20, 30, an entire career in like, quote, toxic environment and, and never, uh, never leave because you're not tapped into the data that's telling you maybe you should leave. And, and, you know, I think that same thing also creates a severe lack of empathy because, you know, I think the other reality is there are many people who can't leave. Um, you know, coming back to our diversity conversation, conversation, you know, there are many people that they don't have the luxury to, you know, leave and you know, find a job that's more meaningful or, you know, this is, they are fully dependent on, on that job, you know, and I, I, I think we, um, that same thing of only being in your head, I think it also cuts you off from, from really putting yourself in, in the shoes of some of those people who don't have the, um, you know, like here in S South Africa, it's really stuck. Um, so people who work in the same company, sometimes even more or less on a similar level, you know, one person would be, um, living in a middle class, you know, three bedroomed house. You're able to, you know, create an office for yourself. You've got access to internet. And somebody else would be living in a shack. 
and trying to deal with all of these all of these things. Um, so I, you know, one of the things that I believe is, I think COVID and this whole pandemic has given us a huge opportunity to really rethink. Um, the nature of work, how we structure ourselves, what leadership and management means in all of these things. But what I'm seeing is that many companies feel that the change has already happened. You know, when they manage to um, shift from having all of their people office bound to, you know, we, they, they're very proud of it. And I mean, it, it is a big achievement. You know, we moved 30,000 people to be able to work, you know, to work um, remotely within two weeks. But it doesn't end there. You know, you because now we've got an old model of working forced into a new mechanism almost, but we haven't really gone back to the drawing board and thought about what else needs needs to change. And I think that's the challenge. Um, and I think some of the, maybe not the answers, but some of the questions I think lie in the space of com complexity, yeah. um, new ways of thinking about st structuring and f seeing organizations as flow systems. You know, thinking about what needs to flow, you know, all of all of those things. I think we need to get our heads around. Yes, that's right. Um, and it's, but it, you know, this is why I get it. It's the individual because you just told that story about the guy. You know, three o'clock in the morning is the only time I can write this. Right? If we present that to one leader who you know is in a certain frame, they may not re in, re respond with with empathy. They may not be open to the experiments that might you might conduct to shift the culture such that it doesn't happen but somebody who's sort of sort of has done the work and can allow themselves to tune into it can allow themselves to empathize you know that can then be a spur for action so it's yeah it i agree with you complexity can create the kind of ex, the space and the tools to explore but unless individual leaders have done the work to sort of use that data in a way that's sort of meaningful and productive it's it's, it's for now right it, it's why you know i you know, to me, it's there's no other way than to deal with the system and the individual or the collective and the individual, because most of the the really um, well-intentioned change efforts that I've seen, you know, happen in, in organizations, many of them, they, they rise and fall on being able to get a particular leader to approve, to approve what, yeah. they, what people want to do. And if that person, as you say, is somebody who hasn't done the work, who, who, still wants to control everything, who's all about the profits, you know, and short-term thinking, linear thinking, all of those things, then unfortunately it just dies a, a, a slow death, you know, and you can, you know, I, I do believe that you can stimulate change bottom up, but, you know, I, I don't know if we've got the time for that. Um, well, you can, you can stimulate it, but can you sustain it? I mean, that's been my professional experience. You can, you can stimulate a lot bottom up. You can get a lot of things going, mm -hmm. you know, put energy into teams and, you know, you can, you can do sometimes quite remarkable things at a kind of team level or a department level, but for it to sustain, right? And and for for, for once that sort of the energy of that coach or that intervention is has dissipated, for it to sustain, you you've got to go all the way, all the way through the organisation. Has been my experience. And I I find it so ironic. You know, one of the one of the things people don't always realise about Kinevan is that it's a dynamic framework. So things don't necessarily sit in a particular domain and stay there. You know, there are dynamics between these domains. And one of the one of the, the dynamics, I think it's been reframed a little bit now that Dave has changed the framework a bit, but we used to call it a shallow dive into chaos. You know, and the and the idea was that, you know, when you are in a chaotic environment where all of a sudden, you know, it's it's um you can't perceive any con constraints, you can't see patterns, it's just everything seems to be random. 
typically this is a domain of crisis. Yeah. You know, and I think with with COVID, we we you know I think almost the entire world has been through a shallow dive into chaos, and now we're kind of vacillating between confusion and complexity. You know, that's the but it feels because that shallow dive into chaos, it's it's typically when change is really possible. Possible, it's when innovation happens, when things that used to work no longer work, and you can um, you can question those what I'd like to call holy cow parrot, you know, um, mm, rules and policies yeah. and things. And it feels to me like we have wasted that opportunity in many companies. You know, it's it's like people are so. They just so want to go back to normal, whether it's the old normal or the new normal. I think normal <laughs> is a code word for, I just want things to be stable and predictable again. You know, I just want to have right. some cert- cert- certainty. And I think we are going to miss the opportunity to really make use of this disruption to bring fundamental change if we just want to force things back to, to some kind of normality again. That no. I think is my biggest fear of what's going to happen now post pandemic. That's that's fascinating, and I see that in myself. Right, I, I I see myself asking myself that question: What is the new normal? But that's the that's the sort of the certainty merchant in me wanting an answer. Like, what 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 can I tell our clients is going to be the new normal? Like, yeah, absolutely. It's it's. it's, it's... And I've I've remembered now. The certainty merchant quote is Diego Espinosa. I told you it'll come um, to me. So yeah. It's, yeah that's, okay. That's, yeah. yeah. I love, yeah, certainty much. And what was the quote again? The full quote? We have outsourced our relationship with uncertainty to certainty merchants. Yeah. You yeah. know, and if you think about it, you know, there's entire industry, in, industries built around being cert- certainty merchants. Just think yeah. life insurance or, you know, it's like the whole retirement industry. It's, it's fascinating just how pervasive that has become. Yeah. Yeah. And um, well, we, it's like, yeah, we, it's almost like we outsource at some level, like our soul, like we outsource like our humanity, right? It's, yeah, our, um, our brilliance, right? Our ability, this unique, you know, ability we all have to navigate complexity and, you know, be resourceful in the face of ambiguity and complexity, like it's in all of us. And I, you know, I, I created a, a framework that I called the ways finder and I, as I was, you know, going through that process, I really became fascinated with, you know, the idea of wayfinding and how, you know, cultures like the ancient Polynesians and, you know, even the Vikings and all of these, you know, like early you know, navigating um, communities or cultures, how they would just almost fearlessly just head into the unknown with that spirit of adventure. And, you know, there, there's so many things that you can't just take those practices and put them down in, in you know, the modern world. They're very interlinked with spiritual ideas and things. But I think we, we really need to reconnect with some of that, with seeing almost uncharted territory and um, the unknown as, you know, exciting sometimes. You know, it, yes, it provokes anxiety. But if you think about it, you can't have an adventure if there's not some kind of unknown aspect to it, and you know, if there's not some uncertainty, then it's not really an adventure. Then you know already know everything. You know, it's might yeah. be an interesting experience, but it can't be an adventure if there's nothing uncertain or ambiguous or unexpected about it. You know, so I I do think we need to reconnect with that. We need to rebuild that relationship that we we used to have and that we s- still have. I mean, if we're all honest, we know that our lives are not certain. Yeah, um, that's yeah. 
we like to pretend that they are, but they're not. So it's just accepting reality, I think, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And practicing it. Like a, a guy I follow online talks about his, he, he stopped using Google Maps, you know, for certain appointments. He, he's just like, okay. And this is like, this is in Australia. And he, he's got to drive like halfway across, well, I don't know, yeah, a significant distance. And he's just like, okay, I'm just going to follow, follow my nose, right? I'm just going to force himself to sort of tap into his intuition to find this place. And again, it's, it's, you know, when people ask me, you know, what is the right thing to do? I almost say, you know, the, the only really, you know, the only answer that's always right in complexity is it depends, you know? And so if I'm, if I have a, you know, like half an hour to get to the other side of the city to make it to a meeting, then I want to use Google Maps because, you know, I need, <laughs> but if, but if, if that becomes the default, you know, I'm never going to, you know, just encounter something new or discover, you know, if I just keep using Google Maps. So I, I think it, it, it is this importance of context again, you know, right when we, where we started with what, what I really loved about complexity, it kind of com comes back to that again, context. Yeah. Context. And, and then, and then consciously putting us, but it's like, but I think what's also emerging for me here is like, you, we've talked about principles uh, and obviously that can every, what can every provides is this wonderful sort of intellectual conceptual framework for thinking about complexity. And, and you've talked about principles. But there is then the practice, right? These practices that we're starting to talk about, you know, whether it be mindfulness and sensing into our bodies, whether it be about, you know, trying to get there without a map that, you know, allows us to confront um, ambiguity or, or confusion even, um, allowing ourselves to be bored, allowing ourselves, as you talk about your psychodynamic, con you know, context to, to face um, opinions or beliefs that we find objectionable, right? All of these, you could almost consider like practices, right? Yeah, Edgar Murat, he said, you know, we need to get away from a conceptual understanding, or we need to go beyond a conceptual understanding of complexity to an, an embodied, un, you know, com complexity. And I think that that's what I think you're referring to. Um, and that, I, I, I agree with you. I think that probably is the shift that we need to make, because I don't know that there are many leaders out there who would deny that we live in a complex world, if you ask them. I think that penny has dropped. The problem is that they are not living into that yet. They're still falling back to the old com complicated habits, things that they are comfortable with, things that, you know, bring certainty that allow them to control things. So I think it is this almost embodied and that does lie in things like practices, new tools. Um, I just understanding con conceptually that that's where we are. I, I don't think that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as I look at my own life, I've, it's like, I'm totally sold on the, on the intellectual. I get the principles. I can talk about the principles, but it, even now what's emerging for in this conversation right now is there's, there's probably a whole lot more that I can do around like consciously thinking about the practices um, that I'm engaging in and, and perhaps how I could do more, more of them. Uh, yeah. To, to build, if you like that sort of set of muscles and that new way of orienting to the world. And then, as you say, that it still gives you the choice, right? You could still move into the patterns of thinking and the tools that make sense for a more ordered context. Uh, but um, you, you don't leave, leave that behind, but it, you, know, you just then develop that capability to be in complexity.
I think one of the most damaging things that happened, you know, a couple of probably, I don't know how many years ago, I can't remember, but when complexity first started emerging as language in the business world, it almost entered the space as if, you know, everything is complex. You can't manage complexity, you know, and, and I think that just scared everybody off. And I think many people, they think about complexity as a space that's unbounded or where there no, there's no s- structure. You know, and, and one of the things that I don't agree with is, is this whole movement around, you know, almost demonizing hierarchies. You know, it's right. almost like we, we, and it's, I think the key thing is to understand that it's not com- complexity has, they, they are structures. They just look different. Um, you know, there's these in, enabling con- constraints. Even, you know, one of my favorite um, writers in the complexity domain is um, Professor Paul Sillier. He was based here in Stellenbosch in South Africa, but he passed away a few years ago. And he says part of the um, vitality of a complex system lies in its ability to maintain adaptive hierarchies. Okay. Yeah. And so it's, it's not about just, you know, letting everything go and we flatten everything and now we're in this boundaryless world. You know, but boundaries will always, you know, you'll, you'll get some psychological boundaries emerging if you do that. But it's, it's understanding that, you know, there, there is structure and you can manage, but you need that they look different and you need to manage differently. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's about just learning how to stand with one foot in each of these systems because we do still have ordered systems. But yeah. we've focused there for so long. You know, we need to understand that most of these ordered systems are surrounded. You know, it's like a, a zoo, but it's surrounded by a complex system. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that yeah. system will intrude. Right. Right. As it's just done, right, over the last couple of years. And yeah, that's right. It's like we've got this great gift as human beings to create these ordered systems, to create productive predictability, but it's almost like it could become you know, a fascination and addiction, uh, you know, uh, you know, and it's, it's, we've got to be able to sit in both. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. Good. Well, um, is there anything else we've not talked about? I, I really enjoyed this. I d- well, it seems like we've kind of touched on many, many things, you know, there are probably lots that we can, um, explore more deeply, but, um, I can't, nothing immediately comes, comes to mind. I've really enjoyed this. This has been fun. Yeah, no, it's, it's been great. Um, and yeah, so, so for people then who've, you know, we've, we've mentioned this Kinevin, if people are not familiar with it or the SenseMaker tool, so uh, they can find out more about the SenseMaker tool, the, the Cognitive Edge website, right? That's the best mm-hmm. place for people to learn yeah, more so about. There's a, the- there's a SenseMaker.CognitiveEdge.com if they want to learn more about the tool. And then, um, I blog on Medium, just under my own own name, Sonia yeah. Blichnot. And um, I also have a, a so I, I have a consultancy here in S- South Africa, as well as a role in, in Cognitive Edge. So that's called morebeyond.co.za. But I think the blogs are mostly kind of repeated. So Medium might be the best place to, right. to find some of my musings. Yes. And the... And the mindfulness, what is it going to be, an app or a platform or like what, 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 how will that manifest? It's emerging at the moment. So right now we're um, building a prototype for a client and then another one for a business school who wants to build a curriculum around complexity fitness. Um, But it'll, we're busy setting up a a website. I think it's complexityfit.co.za, but ideally I think it'll turn into a, probably a a self-directed learning platform. 
You know, we really want to make this accessible. We feel, you know, this is something that many, many people, you know, need to become more, more familiar with. So, um, yeah, that's, and hopefully in the next month or two, it'll be ready. We're like beavering away at the moment, creating all the, all the modules. Um, so hopefully it'll be, it'll be ready soon. Excellent. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, we'll look forward for that, uh, coming into, into the world. Um, and yeah, we'll say, say goodbye. And um, I guess you're heading into your winter now. Yes, you can see the scarves are out, and you know people always laugh at me because you know it's 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 about eighteen or nineteen degrees outside, and we are freezing. You know the boots <laughs> and the slippers and the heaters come out, <laughs> and I think you guys would see that as summer weather. So it's uh, exactly yeah, yeah, we're we're, be, we're heading into winter for that right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's the diversity, you know, it's like, yeah. Well, I hope you make it through. (laughs) (laughs) I've survived almost 50 of them, you know, so I think I'll probably make it. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks Uh, once again. This has been fun. Um, Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for the invite. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.